Hey Public Health Insight listeners, it's LaShawn here with a quick update. Public Health Insight is proud to sponsor Moving Beyond Repair, a student-led conference hosted by Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Over three days, from November 12th to 14th, you can explore upstream approaches to public health emergencies, engage with experts in public health, and listen to emerging student research. Not only will you have full access to webinar sessions, but you will also be able to attend interactive workshops and small-scale social networking events. On top of that, tickets are free. So if you're interested in registering for the conference, please check out our episode description for more details. Thank you. Public health is a population-based field of science focused on preventing disease and promoting health. Every week, we will be engaging in interactive discussions and analyses of the latest public health issues affecting you and your communities all around the world. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. My name is Linda, and I'm here with Gordon, Ben, Will, and Sully. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. Trigger warning. Please note that this episode will discuss suicide and may contain sensitive or triggering content. If you or someone you love has been impacted by suicide, you are not alone. Please use your discretion when listening and connect to supports as needed. For our listeners in Canada, Crisis Services Canada offers a national suicide prevention hotline, which can be reached at 1-833-456-4566 or by text at 45645. Suicide is something that's not often spoken about, and when it is, it's done so in secret. According to estimates from the World Health Organization, 800,000 people die by suicide each year, making it one of the leading causes of death worldwide. Yet even with this evidence, suicide is still something that is hushed, stigmatized, and in some places criminalized. In light of World Suicide Prevention Day this past September, November in November, and other efforts to raise awareness, this episode will take a closer look at the issue of suicide in hopes of removing some of the stigma associated with it and to shed light on an important human issue. So, suicide. What is it and what causes it? By definition, suicide refers to death caused by intentional self-injury. So while it's often stigmatized as a selfish thing, um, suicide is actually a response to extreme emotional pain. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, suicide is a very important public health issue. Um, It is in the top 10 leading cause of death um, worldwide. Um, Suicide is one of the leading causes, like I said, of premature mortality. And um, there's a lot of, it's a very complex multifactorial issue um, that, you know, anything from mental health, um, living environment, um, work environment, a lot of things can impact someone's risk for um, self-harm or suicide. Yeah, it's something to note that although suicide is leading um, is something that affects individuals of all ages, um, according to WHO, people aged 15 to 29, for this age group, suicide is the leading cause of death. And as Linda mentioned earlier, globally, more than 800,000 people die by suicide each year. And that's estimated that for every one person who dies by suicide, 20 others are considering or have already attempted this act. Yeah, and that was shocking to me because it shows that it's so common that everyone you know has been impacted by it in some way. 
And what's interesting is that these are probably underreported numbers mm -hmm. just because of the stigma. Right, right. Yeah. Another thing that I found uh, interesting was that there, there's a lot of risk factors that we'll get into later, but something that's universal is that it affects both high-income countries and low- and mm -hmm. middle-income countries. Because it's such an intersection of different factors, that it affects high-income countries as well. Yeah, we should like take into account all factors because we're when we think about it, we're only assuming that it's purely financial. But mm -hmm. yes. as we're going to discuss in this episode, it's really not. Mm -hmm. And while it does affect across income levels and countries, 79% of all suicides do occur in low- and middle-income countries. And so that statistic is from the World Health Organization, so I'm assuming they have accounted just for the larger number of people in low and middle income countries. However, I don't know. Why do you think that 79% of all suicides occur in low and middle income countries? Right. And that can be based off the population density or the higher yeah. population. With So for example, if they consider more countries to be lower middle income than the few select higher income countries, and mm -hmm. that obviously is going to inflate that rate or right. that percentage. Yeah. 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 And I wanted to share some of the from a Canadian context. So in Canada, um, about 4,000 people um, die by suicide each year, um, which accounts to about um, 11 people per day. And it is, you know, like Will mentioned, it's, it's you know, on a global level, um, it is a leading cause of death in like youth and young adults. It's the same in Canada. But one important thing I wanted to highlight is the, so in terms of gender differences um, in that age group, um, females tend to um, experience more um, self-harm or intentional injuries that require hospitalization than males. But males disproportionately overrepresented in the number of suicide deaths, um, up mm -hmm. to three times higher in some age groups, uh, more than women. So it just shows that um, we're going to get into it a little bit later, the different means that um, people choose to, you know, um, attempt suicide, you know, whether it's medication which is which tends to be the method of choice for females versus more lethal mean, means like guns or knives for males. So that's probably why, um, mm -hmm. then, you know, males whenever they attempt, it's more lethal. Um, so then they have a high, a lower rate of even being surviving a hospital visit. So I just wanted to emphasize that as well. And in Canada, um, to the point of suicide being a very important issue that's not spoken about enough, um, according to the Public Health Agency of Canada, um, one in nine or one in every 10 um, person over their lifetime will have uh, some thoughts of suicide. Um, so it just goes to show um, how prevalent it is. And then 4% over their life course will um, attempt suicide. So um, wow. it's a lot. We don't talk about it a lot. And people, there's a lot of shame um, involved. And we want to attempt to um, minimize the stigma associated with it talking about suicide and it's important to, to highlight so gordon thank you for bringing that up when we talk about suicide it's also including suicidal ideation and self-harm mm -hmm. and like you were saying it's so common for people to have thoughts of suicide but one in ten people um and so if we can normalize that and say you know what that's a human thing let's talk about it you know, if it's if it gets to a point where it's impacting your your day to day life, mm -hmm. like let's see how we can get access to treatment. Like that's something that I think is a conversation that needs to be had more often, for sure. Yeah, I think before we continue with our discussion, 
it would be helpful that we kind of go over some of the language and terminology mm-hmm. um, when discussing this topic because oftentimes you know, with as with any topic um kind of the language that's commonly used might not necessarily be you know what's the preferred or the appropriate language and i think when we're when talking about suicide as well um you know there's certain language that we need to you know make sure we s- kind of i guess share with our listeners but also f- in our own lives we um and if start using this is this correct um terminology just to to respect the individuals right and in the past you know people have used language that has increased stigma and whether intentional or unintentional um and so terms like committed suicide for example like that's come to be accepted as something we should avoid using because it kind of implies that um something is criminal right. that suicide is mm. criminal or that it's like a sinful action that you're committing right before and that's actually um from my reading that's like an artifact because at one point acts of you know you know if someone died by suicide that was a criminal act so i yep. think it's one thing that kind of lingered in language and never mm-hmm. really transitioned from decriminalizing um dying by suicide mm-hmm. and in some places it is still criminalized mm-hmm. so it reflects why we still have that language um but the more preferred term to use instead is to say someone died by suicide so the term um, committed suicide was previously used because there were laws in place i'm not sure how you would prosecute someone who died by suicide i'm not sure if their family was liable but there mm. was it was considered a criminal if- offense so that's what we mean by criminalize the terminology was intended to criminalize but now that it's no longer um mm. a criminal offense in a lot of countries then the, ter- the term committed suicide is no longer appropriate to use i think this is referring to like it was criminal a criminal offense and this is why the whole stigma exists right Mm-hmm. If someone in your family died by suicide when it was illegal to do so, then you it's almost that you're even going to cover it up because then it's going to bring shame to your family, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why um, nowadays in a lot of countries, um, recognizing that um, suicide is caused by a lot of issues upstream, um, a lot of risk factors that involve mental health that increases the risk of someone dying by suicide. Um, we know that it's not like the person's a bad person or anything yeah. like that. So I think now we're able to look at it more objectively and realize that saying committed suicide can inflict harm on people with lived experience of suicide. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess when you criminalize something, then it removes that ability to intervene, to ask for help because you don't want to be seen mm-hmm. as a bad person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to the the unsuccessful versus successful um, language, right? So this is all kinds of problematic, though, because right, you know, a suicide is not something that is. It's not about success right. or or failure mm-hmm. or it's it's someone in pain, right. right? So and it and it switches. So successful in this case is bad, and then failure mm-hmm. is good. But then that's not how we look at you just call it an attempt you know there's no yeah. need to get yeah. into if it's successful Positive, or not negative. right yeah. right if, if the person died by suicide it's died by suicide if, if it was a non-fatal attempt then it's just attempt and i think that goes into the history of the language and its relation to crime for example committing murder 
they unsuc mm -hmm. unsuccessfully committed murder right. or they successfully mm -hmm. committed murder and that language has had it grouped in the same way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but yeah. it's totally it's a totally different um concept that we're talking about that causes that stigmatization and i guess overall in terms of trying to use safe language it's trying to remember that these are that you're talking about a human being a person so how do we use person-centered mm -hmm. language that is respectful that doesn't you know label someone as you're just a person at risk of suicide but like you're a human being mm -hmm. who is experiencing thoughts of suicide and so trying to um, use less stigmatizing words hopefully it, it can add to reducing stigma overall right and i get that it's like oh man i have to use more words to describe the thing but it's very important what you're saying, Linda. Like, for example, I know back when the schizophrenia was becoming more well-known, um, people would be referred to as, you know, that guy's schizophrenic, right? Mm -hmm. Now it's like mm -hmm. that person is living with schizophrenia. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it separate the person from the condition. So um, that goes into the argument that we're making to speak about things in a more humanizing way. Oh, yeah. Great point. Separating the person from the condition. That's something mm -hmm. that we definitely struggle with a lot in our society in general. We try to label people by conditions that they may be experiencing. Absolutely. And also, when something is wrong with someone, we always assume personal reasons as to what's wrong with them Oof, versus yeah. understanding the social or other factors. And we're going to get into that, too. So we've kind of touched on these things already. But why do you think there is such stigma associated with suicide? I think uh, religion has a huge part mm. to do with it. Um, personally, being raised as a Roman Catholic, suicide is very much frowned upon, and it's an instant sin where you're going to hell. Mm. So it's very much um, stigmatized in that way. Mm -hmm. So it's like you get the gift of life, and then you got yes. rid of it, and it's just like, how dare you, almost. Exactly. Like, only God is able right. to make that decision regarding and then life, the, you know of, continuing yeah. that change when you know cultural norms or just societal norms like if you're not able to endure something then you're considered weak right so exactly um that's another factor why um, suicide is stigmatized and then when people do this is a thing that people do a lot um well i lost i lost my grandmother and i was okay and you mm. know not everybody's experience is the same you know maybe they didn't have as much support outside of that um, person to be able to have enough res resiliency to cope. So you can't really, a lot of times people compare their situation to other people's situation and they can't understand why, you know, something so small from their perspective would have such a traumatic effect on someone. And that's another factor as well. Yeah, it's like failed empathy because you can see that they're trying to relate it to their own experiences, but they don't understand the factors that go into those experiences or the differences between it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In MPH, we talked a lot about um, it's trying to equate or um, almost measure trauma. And mm -hmm. I think that's oftentimes, um, you know, when discussing suicide, if you have individuals who have attempted to end their life or you know who have died by suicide um you know i've i've heard of a lot of kind of just the language and just the rhetoric around that being you know viewing these individuals as attention seekers and you know and then bringing up other instances where you know people might have gone through similar situations on on face value right mm. you don't you obviously you don't know the specific context but mm -hmm. i guess for face value you think oh you know these two people have gone through similar things well kid this person this person is fine where this person kind of you know attempted to end their life and you know is just looking to um you know draw attention to themselves and kind of um 
acting up in that way. And I think yeah. that's, it's in a way, it's, it's a, it's a very toxic, um, it's culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, that's, that's kind of just perpetuated. Yeah. I feel like we need to make a very important, uh, distinction when we talk about like, uh, culture, religion, and its perspective on suicide. Say a religion says that suicide is a sin. The problem is that when people, like it, it can, it can still be a sin in the religion. The problem is that when people see it as a sin, and then because of that, they stigmatize against the person who is considering it and refusing to to help them because of that. So again, not separating the person from the condition, they lump the two. Exactly. Also, going back to um, Will's point with you know the language that is used, um, the media also has a responsibility as well, right? There's a lot of in 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 terms of best practices, um, you have to be careful about how you you talk about suicide. So not only showing examples where you know people um, died by suicide, but also talking about success stories and stories of strengths and building resiliency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we, mm-hmm. we often see a lot of times when things go wrong, but we don't hear about the people that, um, I don't want to say have overcome because it's a lifelong struggle and journey to to get well again, but those people that are still f- able and they're around to f- continue fighting. So we also have to highlight those stories to make sure um, people know that there is hope at the end of the tunnel if 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 they access the supports that they need mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's a very good tangent i think um especially focusing about i guess talking about um the role of media and um you know reporters writers think people like that or even just like the uh the, the private sector um gonna kind of just go off on, on that for a little bit i think it's because it's very important that you know especially when we're talking about health or you know public health related issues um having kind of people like reporters um have a seat at the table it's it's super crucial um not only in the in the discussion on you know suicide as we are having now but i think even um you know other very relevant issues right now that we're having for example um you know vaccinations for the pandemic that issue is starting to come up again and i think um, by involving reporters and media and making sure that they do their part in fighting against misinformation, but also giving access to these resources um, and this, these correct resources and that are, are reliable. I think um, that's that's definitely something that's that's lacking. I think it's an excellent point, and um, I don't know exactly where I heard this. So, when there are high-profile suicides that are reported in the media for well-known celebrities, things like that, the risk of suicide in the general population goes up, mm-hmm. whether that's due to you know, people's feelings of loss, mm-hmm. but also how the suicide is reported. Mm-hmm. And there mm-hmm. are guidelines mm-hmm. to, to ensure that people's well-being is kept in mind mm-hmm. when these are reported, but how often are those guidelines followed? And so that's something we can talk about when we get into prevention as well. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I've definitely seen... I, I I feel like we probably talked about this during our LT last year, but I've definitely <laughs> heard heard that before. Um, it's the idea of having you know when when celebrities or well known people, um, especially people who have you know influence or have a lot of following, um, if they've died by suicide, you see kind of like the the rates almost increase 
like a ripple effect yeah Yeah. it's like a copycat kind of effect where people who are experiencing those feelings now believe i guess it's an appropriate way to take out right it kind of Mm -hmm. so we're trying to normalize talking and expressing feelings of of suicide Mm -hmm. um, or suicide thoughts and then sometimes whether it's intentional or unintentional the media can normalize suicide as an answer for pain right so yeah that's so Mm -hmm. that's what happens when you know anthony bourdain it's like okay if you go through a lot um even the um celebrities do it too so you know you you can do it but that's it sends the wrong message so there just has to be tender tender love and care when reporting um on any you know high profile suicide case the reporters have a responsibility to ensure that and I did to be fair, I did see during the coverage of that there was a lot of reference to where you can access supports. Um, but that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Right. When we look at the risk factors, whether it be financial or social support, and then they see these uh VIPs dying by suicide, even though they have these factors protecting them, that causes a sense of hopelessness with these individuals mm-hmm. where they might have that ripple effect for suicide mm, can go the other way this person has everything to live exactly and then they still right. weren't able to persevere so like where does that leave me mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. well let's look at some of those risk and protective factors and see um, how suicide can be prevented so age as will mentioned earlier suicide is a leading cause of death for people aged 15 to 29 years so that's the adolescent to adult years but also interestingly for older adults so 65 to 70 and up, the risk is high there too. And that could be due to things like reduced quality of life due to illness or isolation, um, people around you passing away because they are also getting older in years. And I think that's an overlooked issue, older adults and suicide risk. Initial reactions to those two um, categories, is, is um, I guess my initial reactions are, it's, it's interesting because if you look at it, those you know the the younger and the older are you know in in the I guess the society are are the two um, most vulnerable populations. Right, you mm-hmm. have those individuals who haven't yet reached the age of majority, who don't actually have a lot of um, autonomy, and then you also have the older adults who are um, oftentimes sick with a lot of other health conditions and don't actually don't aren't able to um, oftentimes care for themselves. So I think it's it, it's interesting to see how the two two of the most um, vulnerable segments of the population age-wise are heavily affected by suicide. Yeah, another thing I wanted to touch on too is um, nine out of 10 people who died by suicide had some previous issues with mental health, right? So it just goes to show how big of, you know, mental wellness, how, how much of a protective factor it is, right? Not to say that... Um, you know, we know that most people with mental health issues do not attempt suicide. So it's it's not like a one-to-one relationship, but it's important to know that it is a risk factor. And I also wanted to highlight too as well, um, that eight out of every 10 people who die by suicide gave some indications of their intention to do so. So it's important that we're able to recognize some of those warning signs of suicides just as just as human beings with social relationships we we need to know those behaviors that we need to look for and i could share some of them real quickly if you don't mind so some of the warning signs of of suicide includes sudden change in mood or behavior 
um, like Linda mentioned, some hopelessness or helplessness. Um, they might um, explicitly exp- express a, a wish to die or end their life. Mm-hmm. Um, there might be some changes in substance dependence or substance use. Uh, they might withdraw from friends and family and even mm-hmm. activities that they previously enjoyed, not showing up for work. Uh, there might be loss of appetite. And one of the main ones that we see as well is giving away prized possessions or making sudden plans mm-hmm. for their death. So I mm-hmm. wanted to, so for any of those listeners listening, um, these are just some warning signs that you should be aware of for suicide. Have those warning sign guidelines evolved in the advent of social media and how people project themselves on social media? Yeah, so I, that's a good question. I'm not sure if I if I can answer it, but I know um, back on the topic of um, risk factors, um, bullying and cyberbullying is all is a, is a actually another risk factor for negative mental health and a risk factor mm-hmm. for suicide. Yeah. So uh, I'm not sure how that presents itself with. Um, these warning signs being displayed to, through social media. There have been cases where people um, have shared um, disturbing, potentially dis- concerning is the right word, concerning things on their social media and people have reached out to help and that seems to have been successful, but I'm not sure how, that's a good question, how these evolve with um, social media and sharing information. Yeah, because... Um- because I, I agree, I think sharing disturbing information is one of them, but also like extreme withdrawal, mm-hmm. but not in the sense of like, you, you know, someone just stops using social media. But like, for example, if someone has an Instagram profile and they just suddenly delete everything on their account, mm-hmm. you know, change it up, like it's a very drastic change in behavior. Is that a warning sign? Mm-hmm. But also, you know what, too, Ben, like while we're on the topic, like how has COVID-19 kind of changed everything? Like, um, mm-hmm. you don't know if I'm withdrawing because they're everyone's saying physical or social distance so we don't hang out as much anymore not because i'm just ignoring your phone calls because we're not allowed so how do we even measure um, what's our new baseline to measure things against right what's our new baseline to measure how people have changed their behavior is it because of the pandemic or is it because they're going through something internal um that's that's something that's difficult and I guess more than trying to assume or read people's minds, mm-hmm. especially with COVID, when we just don't know what's going on, mm-hmm. like reach out, ask questions. If you see something that you think is concerning, mm-hmm. whether you know or not mm-hmm. what the, the real answer is, just ask, mm-hmm. you know, because only, the only way to really know if someone is considering suicide is to ask them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Linda, during you, these you, times. Like, yeah, and, yeah. And there is a misconception that even growing up, like, asking the question plants the idea in the person's head yeah and we know mm. that we know from research that is actually not true it's actually um there are more positive outcomes that to come from that providing mm-hmm. the person being confided in um you know you know actively listens and connects them to someone who can help so right. um, the only way you're gonna know if someone needs help i mean sure we wish we hope that someone would just tell you that hey i'm thinking about suicide that's just not the case it's not the we're not we don't live in a society where someone feels comfortable to just to come up to someone and say it so we have to let them know that there's a safe space by asking a question yeah and it, and it comes back to saying that physical isolation is not social isolation it's not the same yes. so you have yes. keep keep uh, talking with, with each other keep the communication channels open it's very mm-hmm. important what other protective factors are there besides communication well, I'll talk actually this I I'm glad you brought it up because 
Um, I work at the health unit where I have to do a lot of research on suicide prevention. And we had our Suicide Prevention Awareness Month in September. Um, and one of the biggest things that we found was, um, I can't remember the researcher's name, but um, essentially they did a study that found that the number of suicide deaths in the U.S. and Canada were very strongly associated with the unemployment rate, right? So in a way that an increase in the unemployment rate of 1% um, corresponded to a 1% increase in the number of suicide deaths. So if you kind of reverse engineer that, Ben, um, job security, income, and you know not being in poverty um, can be protective factors against suicide. Absolutely. And that's more from an upstream perspective. And I think often prevention efforts don't include those types of interventions, probably because they're harder to do. You need more government support for that. Um, but from a more downstream perspective, other protective factors include things like being involved in the community, so volunteering, sports, or having just strong, meaningful relationships with other people who you can lean mm on um, in difficult circumstances as well. Yeah. And I think one of the other protective factors for suicide um, is strong family relationships, mm -hmm. because um, especially during COVID, um, globally and more you know, specifically in um, the Americas region, we've seen a, a, a drastic rise in domestic violence, abuse uh, in the family unit and things like that. And not only does that, no, things like that, like, like these, they have their own set of, um, of consequences and effects. But one of the other, um, I guess additional impacts that these issues can cause is it can be a risk factor for, um, individuals attempting suicide. Mm -hmm. And even talking about family, it, while often, you know, you'd hope that it's your biological family, sometimes it can't be. And so that can be your chosen family. Mm -hmm. Whoever is a safe person in your life, that can be your family. So, mm -hmm. yeah. One uh, nuance that I found was really interesting was religion is also a protective factor. Yeah. And I know that we mentioned earlier that religion could be a cause of the stigmatization. Mm. But I think in this case, religion does the same thing as a community. Mm. In the sense that it strengthens those personal relationships with individuals in the community. It also instills hope, as we know, as a protective factor. So I find it interesting that it kind of plays on both sides of the coin, mm -hmm. depending on how you're in yeah. it. Right. That's a good point, Ben. I think it also depends on what, um, where the person's at. If it if the per is protective in the, in that, um, maybe the person doesn't even, um, maybe they're. Their, the state of their mental health is pretty good and they, they never get to the point where they consider or have thoughts of suicide, right? But if mm -hmm. for people that are already at that stage, maybe it can be more harmful to be in an in a environment where the culture is to condemn those types of solutions to, um, I guess they, they always say with su suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Um, mm -hmm. So in those cases, it's, it's it might be more harmful. So I guess it depends on what stage... Uh, the person is on um, the spectrum, I guess. I would disagree a little with that, though. I think because, anyway, this is anecdotal. So, mm. you know, I don't know what the most objective type of evidence is, but just experiences that I have had or that people I am close to have had. Oh, just, just to clarify, which part you disagree with? Um, saying that if someone is in a more extreme crisis that mm. religion could be more negative no not not mm. an absolute uh, just the fact that we were confused on whether 
you know, why isn't in some cases it might seem protective? Why in some cases it might be yeah. a risk factor? But yeah, continue, then, continue. Uh, just to speak on that first part, I think mm-hmm. it's more what Sully was saying with um, religion and culture of is it that how people are perceiving it or is mm-hmm. it the religion and culture mm-hmm. itself? When people are in extreme crisis situations, if they may not feel comfortable turning to other people, mm-hmm because it's like this is so difficult it's so hard to deal with mm-hmm. having a religion to fall back on is like when you're at that very bottom place mm-hmm. knowing you have religion mm-hmm. is something that you know I can't turn to anybody else this is my most you know darkest state of crisis but I have my faith to lean on and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it depends on I think people's experiences of religion mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you're saying Gordon sometimes if it's very judgmental you would never want to bring this issue there, mm-hmm. the issue of suicide to religion. But I, I, I have seen for some people, um, religion has been the only thing that's helped them. Yeah, it gives you even a sense of you, you know, faith and purpose and community, right? So yeah. when you look at even sports, you know, yeah. volunteering in the community, um, religion, what are some commonalities with, with those? It's just a sense of purpose, a sense of community. Yeah. Um, which Belonging. is right. So it, it's less about the actual, whether it's religion or sports, but what is it about these things that um, have a protective effect against suicide? And I think it's probably the connection to people, sense of belonging, um, having a purpose, a meaning, mm-hmm. meaning in life. Because we talked about uh, one of the risk factors for suicide is hopelessness and helplessness. So if you address those directly through whether it be religion or sports or volunteering, um, humanitarian stuff, um, you might get a sense of purpose and community that protects against it. And speaking of all these risk and protective factors, I think COVID presents a good example of just totally amplifying mm-hmm. or even maybe in some cases eliminating risk and protective factors. And so because it's something that's on everyone's minds, I think it's a good place for us to explore just a bit of how COVID has impacted or can impact suicide. Yeah, just at the forefront of my mind is the social distancing versus social isolation. Mm -hmm. And we know that that isolation is a risk factor for suicide. Um, But as Sully mentioned, social distancing doesn't mean isolation. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. What do you guys think? On the one hand, it could be a risk factor. But on the other hand, it could promote more checking in on people, which could be a protective factor. Yeah, it's uh, the way I'm thinking about it right now is, one of two things can happen. Either you, you know, working nine to five every day, going to work and probably maybe not coming back home, maybe working uh, over hours and you're not seeing your family much, you're not seeing your friends much and then you're just, um, you're just going deeper and deeper into this isolation mentality. On the other hand, uh, COVID may have brought you uh, together with family and now you're seeing each other more and that's how you um, that's how like you're strengthening your social relationships with your family with your friends and it's protecting you that way so mm-hmm. yeah another thing too like goes back to the point of the association between unemployment and um, the number of suicides so um, we know that a lot of people have lost their jobs um, as a result of COVID and um, lockdowns to businesses and workplaces so that's going to create some economic stresses for individuals and families to deal with and one in particular 
um, middle-aged men, for example, are um, have a very disproportionate high rate for um, deaths by suicide. So, um, and you think of the age group of 45 to, you know, maybe 64, that's kind of the middle to, to peak age for working, right? For, mm-hmm. for you know, so if you think of um, a lot of these people have worked very hard to um, accumulate enough money to retire and they may not be able to do so and support their families. And this is one of the major causes for why um, middle-aged men um, die by suicide is because of these life stressors and changes when they get to middle age. So um, I imagine that COVID um, could exacerbate this, but um, like we talked about, all these risk factors don't act in isolation. They interact with each other, interact with protective factors. So you can have a family who's very supportive and then they might still have a child that died by suicide. Or you can have a child that comes from the worst environment possible who still is able to thrive in life. There's It's very complex and mm-hmm. there's no one single predictor, um, but there are factors that we need to be aware of. So looking at COVID and, and suicide from a higher level, um, just from like an... Um like a high level lens. If you look at you know, a lot of the risk factors that we talked about earlier, um, you know, things like age, things like unemployment, etc. A common theme that you can draw from this is that often these risk factors are things that place individuals in positions of vulnerability. And so, you know, with even with COVID, I think COVID in itself is putting a lot of people um, in much more vulnerable positions. And when they are placed in these positions, it exacerbates you know, the risk of attempting um, to commit suicide, sorry, attempting to end their life um, and you know, dying by suicide. And I think just the, the whole idea of just an, any sort of vulnerability in an individual's life um, is could, could be a potential risk. And as we mentioned earlier, suicide is a multifactorial issue so just the issue i guess the the idea of of a risk it can vary greatly i guess overall covid just kind of magnifies those existing vulnerabilities yeah or even creates new ones right like as gordon said with the unemployment with um you know the lack of social interactions yeah it can create new ones or um, amplify existing vulnerabilities that might be um, caused by society might be caused by historical factors etc yeah yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, creating vulnerabilities because just bringing off some personal experiences is that from a healthcare perspective, I work at a cancer center hospital. A lot of the priority has been on containing COVID versus um, other aspects of cancer care. Mm. So that's caused a lot of people, for example, um, one of the things that happens is there's been a decrease in mental health services because there's been refunding towards COVID measures. And that also occurs in other hospitals, right? Um, on the devil's advocate side to that is that because of COVID, after we've had a few months in it, we've also developed a lot of telehealth and distance-based programs that increase access to care. So mm-hmm. you don't have to live in the same location as your prov- care provider anymore. So it's it's there's a nuance to everything. Mm-hmm. And although COVID, COVID has amplified the worse, It has also brought in some positives due to our adoption of technology or distance-based programs. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. 
If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.